Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Really interesting guest this week, Osmar Abib, one of the most influential energy M&A bankers in the world. Uh, he's worked on some of the biggest deals in the sector in recent memory, including Halliburton's effort to buy Baker Hughes, which is being challenged by the Department of Justice as we speak. That actually could be next week's What's the Big Deal segment, because we could find out soon if that deal's moving forward or will fall apart under regulatory scrutiny. But first, it's time for this week's What's the Big Deal? And we're focusing on another deal that has ties to the energy sector, but sort of in a different way. And so we bring in Bloomberg's boutique investment banks reporter, Shanali Basak, to discuss names that will be very familiar to our listeners uh, who are in the know in the investment banking world, but probably not so familiar to everyone else. Perella Weinberg, and that's the name of an investment bank, not a person, uh, is in talks to merge with Tudor Pickering. These are two small investment banks that make their living off, guess what, advising M&A deals. Hi, Shanelli. Hi there. So who are these two firms, and why is this deal being considered? So the firms, they're while it's not a person, Perella, Joe Perella and Peter Weinberg. They so, were people. Yeah, they were people. They were veteran dealmakers. Joe Perella was Morgan Stanley, um, Peter Weinberg, Goldman Sachs. They came together, and they built a firm. And it was focused on mergers and acquisitions, and also uh, has an asset management division. Lately, it's been going through a little bit of stress um, for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, they lost a lot of dealmakers last year and asset managers, and their deal count is you know, has been dwindling a bit. And so, you know, they and they don't really have a significant energy presence. So a deal to buy or have a joint venture with Tudor Pickering would give them exposure to an area this year that's been red hot for M&A. I really should say they are people, right? They're, 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 uh, no, they're, they're no longer the uh, driving force of well, I, I mean, actually, that I, I shouldn't say that, really, because Peter Weinberg's still there, right? Right. They, they and, both and are still Carella's there. And is still there, too, as the chairman of the firm, correct? Right, right. The, they're both absolutely still there, very much involved, and um, the firm is run by Bob Steele, former Wachovia executive. So, I mean, it's definitely changed a bit what it looks like in terms of talent. Um, they, they brought on a couple new people. They brought on Bruce Mendelson last year from Goldman Sachs to deal with restructuring after they lost a group of about four, I think, restructuring bankers, who actually they're still in a legal dispute with. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because the, the the deal comes at an interesting time for the firm. And we didn't even talk about Tudor Pickering. Tudor Pickering is also two people, um, Bobby Tudor and Dan Pickering. Bobby Tudor used to work at Goldman Sachs with Peter Weinberg. And, you know, after Goldman, I, Byron Trott invested in this firm as well. So there, there's a, line, a Goldman lineage here as well. So they went off and they, they really focus on energy sector deals, sales, trading, underwriting. And they also have an asset management arm of $1.5 billion dollars. 
So how big are the banks in terms of valuation? Do we have a sense of that? We don't have a sense of valuation. What we do have is kind of roughly how many people each of them have. I mean, Perella Weinberg is about 450 people. They're the number 25 merger advisor this year. So, I mean, there are people who are out there who can sit there and look at how much they're maybe generating in fees every year. It's very unclear. I mean, they're both private firms, so it's very unclear how much they actually take in um, and, you know, what, what their financial statements really look like. Tudor Pickering is a little smaller. It's about 175 people in about four or five different offices worldwide. So this is a good primer for our guest this week, Osmar Abib. Why focus on energy deals? What is the draw for Perella to want to get more into the energy world? Well, take a look, right? I mean, the thing is, I, maybe I'm a little bit more bearish than some people might have been on the M&A market this year. Uh, you know, people are worried about financing. People are looking at a plunge in oil prices that's rattled the entire industry. Everybody's been hiring, right? Everybody's been hiring energy talent, restructuring talent. The boutique firms specialize in restructuring in a way that maybe Goldman can't, right? So uh, it's a good time for boutiques to really ramp up their energy and restructuring work and kind of cater to the energy clients that have been suffering from prolonged low fuel prices. Why can Goldman not do that? Do they just choose not to focus on restructuring? Is it less profitable or is it more niche? From what I understand, too, I mean, there's some sort of there's some conflict of interest in some different parts of their business as well. I just know that the boutiques kind of have a stronger focus than a larger the larger banks do. I mean, with that said, clearly Goldman did have restructuring bankers. They do have a strong energy practice as well. Right. I mean, it's not like they don't exist in these areas, of course. But I mean, it is a place that the boutiques can compete in a way that's significant. How common is this, that two boutique investment banks decide to get together for added scale or have to get into a new industry vertical? Honestly, it's what we've been waiting for. So um, what happened for a while, you know, we were getting out of a year where we had record M&A. How long do you keep that up for, right? And so when you see uh, kind of a sign of any slowdown, you see companies like Perella who are going through a little bit of stress here and there. A company like Greenhill, if you look at the stock price, it's gone up, it's gone straight down, right? And and there's so many options for people to go to different places right now. So now it's the time for boutiques all across the board to think of deals. Did this one in particular come out of left field? Yes. Um, people were wondering what Perella would do next, whether they would seek an IPO. Actually, one of our Bloomberg View columnists today had a great story out about how this might be a primer to set them up for an IPO. They bought on Bob Steele a couple of years ago. That was also seen as a primer for an IPO. No, but we don't know, right? But um, to the Tudor Pickering deal did come out of left field. And it was interesting to see them choose to go into energy in a more significant way. Do we have any sense of how likely this is to happen at this stage? No, it's still early talks. We don't have a sense of kind of whether they'll go through with it. I mean, they could go through with the takeover. They could go through with the joint venture. They don't. We don't know whether like the sales and trading divisions of Tudor Pickering will be interesting to Perella Weinberg. But, you know, the thing is, given that their asset management division has had some signs of stress, it's interesting that if they choose to acquire Tudor Pickering, they get another $1.5 billion in AUM. And so other than Joseph Barella and Peter Weinberg, are there other big name bankers that work at either of these firms? Le- yeah, you know one of them, Alex. Uh, Woody Young came on from Lazard last year. Yeah. Um, so I These mean- are potential guests on this show. <laughs> too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of talent at Perella Weinberg. I mean, they tend to be like long time, well known um, deal makers in the industry with, you know. Woody just came over, as mm-hmm. you alluded to. Yeah. 
Woody just came over, and then, uh, yeah, th- there are some folks there with interesting names. And it, honestly, we'll see this year, too. Like I said, they had a lot of people leave last year. So I think this year will be an interesting year to see them stack up the bench again. Ivan Seidenberg works at Perella Weinberg. There are some interesting Big names. Big name, mm-hmm. formerly of Verizon and, uh, and uh, sort of well-known in the media world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Shanali Bassick, Bloomberg uh, boutique investment bank reporter. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our guest this week is Osmar Abib, global head of oil and gas at Credit Suisse, where he's worked for more than 20 years. And in the last year, his team has been involved in some of the sector's biggest M&A deals, including Halliburton's takeover of Baker Hughes, that was for a cool $35 billion or so. Of course, that deal still in the news uh, these days as uh, the, the Department of Justice uh, takes a look at it. Uh, and uh, Cameron International sale to Schlumberger, which was for about $15 billion. And aside from M&A, his group has also been the dominant underwriter for oil and gas equity offerings as energy prices crashed last year. Uh, in other words, they've helped a lot of uh, explorers raise money to weather the downturn. Osmer, welcome to Deal of the Week. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and also, I am joined by Bloomberg's M&A reporter for the energy industry, Matt Monks. Hey, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Osmer, let's start. I don't want to say let's start at the very beginning, but let's start somewhere toward the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your background, because we'll get into this a little bit. Energy investment bankers maybe are a little different than the common investment bankers, both in their uh, background and uh, the people they deal with. Okay. Uh, well, I grew up in a lot of different places, really. I'm a Brazilian by birth and then spent most of my time in Houston, Texas. But I also made a, a bit of a six-year side tour to uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, my father was in the oil and gas business, and I was an engineer out of college, out of Rice University. And then after that, I went to business school and uh, been a, uh, in the oil and gas investment banking business now for uh, almost 30 years. So oil and gas has been in my blood. And um, also from a regional perspective, Texas has been in my blood too. It's a very, very entrepreneurial business and obviously with lots of uh, uh, cycles. And we're in one of those downturns today. But uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting and, and very important uh, industry globally. And what made you switch from engineering to investment banking? Uh, While well, I was doing, uh, I actually really thoroughly enjoyed being out in the field as an engineer and, and learned a lot about the business, met some really interesting people, particularly the people in the field. But I, as I had, was an engineer for a couple of years, I, uh, I was doing more and more analytical and valuation work. And I thought that, uh, that an MBA would complement my engineering uh, skills. One of the things I find interesting about uh, energy investment banking is is uh, there seems to be uh, a lot of advisors that have um, roots in the oil and gas industry. Either you know their family was involved in it, or they're from the Houston area. Um, it, it just seems like there's a high concentration of people you know with ties to Texas that go into oil and gas investment banking, or a lot, and a lot of your peers have kind of similar backgrounds. Can you speak to you know why that is? Well, I think it is because the industry is regionally concentrated and. And I don't want to ignore other uh, important parts of the oil and gas industry in the U.S. as well. Let's not forget Oklahoma and uh, a number of other important states, including the Rockies and a variety of other places. Basically, I think it's really uh, the regional concentration of the industry, particularly the headquarters 
of most oil and gas companies. Uh, it's similar, I think, to what happens uh, is happening with the tech world with the concentration of companies in Silicon Valley. It's not, not all of them are there by any means, but there is a sufficient concentration. Uh, it's one of the reasons that uh, the bulk of our U.S. team and our global team is based in Houston, Texas today. It's really to be uh, close to our clients, uh, and uh, we found that that's a very good model. And that's evolved from when I was a young banker, uh, when most oil and gas bankers were based in New York. And I think over the past three decades, uh, I think we've all realized that being close to your client and as the energy industry became more relevant, particularly with the shale boom, uh, being based in, in Texas, Oklahoma, and other regional pockets made a lot more sense. I didn't realize that. I always assumed it was you know Texas-based, that that's a shift. I don't think it's a shift. I just think that uh, there's just been a, a resurgence in the U.S. oil industry, oil and gas industry. Before the shale boom, I think you could say that the oil and gas industry was becoming a very mature industry. Uh, in terms of the number of big discoveries, uh, I mean, there were plenty, but not not in this, to the same magnitude as before in prior decades. And so the business was becoming much more international, and it still is today, but the, the shale boom really recalibrated or shifted uh, the bulk of the industry back to the U.S. with the, the emergence of those players uh, who started as very small companies, became mid-sized companies, ultimately very large companies. And so I, I think uh, when I became global head of oil and gas uh, several years ago, I was uh, anticipating spending a lot more time internationally, and I still do that. But the, the biggest concentration of companies today is still in the uh, Texas and Oklahoma regional area. And was something that was your father in the oil business to begin with in Brazil, and then did he move to the United States? Is that how that happened? Yes, my uh, my father started with Petrobras, and he came to the U.S. for his graduate degree. Uh, he was the first uh, Ph.D. in petroleum engineering for the country of Brazil. And he decided to move back to the U.S., I think, one, for, for us, the family, and two, because Petrobras back then was not what it is today and was only, hard to believe, but only an onshore business really at the time. And he thought with his advanced graduate degrees that there were interesting things to do. And so he spent uh, in the U.S., and so he spent most of his career at ExxonMobil, but he was seconded to Saudi Aramco for those six years that I referred to earlier. So you moved back to the United States, and one of the things uh, I know that Matt and I talked about uh, off-air was that you went to a high school that, for whatever reason, seems to breed energy investment bankers. Is there Was there a targeted course at your high school to get into the investment banking industry later in life? No, I think it was a bit of coincidence, but uh, it was a very well-regarded uh, high school in the Spring Branch School District, and I think uh, our parents just happened to you know, have a lot of uh, history with the energy business, the oil and gas business. And I think most people moved out to those in West Houston, moved out to get a little more land, a little nicer home. And, and we all ended up in that high school. Uh, there are at least four of us that uh, are, are still senior bankers in the oil and gas industry. And, and we knew each other back then. And in fact, we even played on the same basketball team for, for a short period of all time. All four of you? Yes. It's Skip McGee uh, and Eads. Uh, yeah, Greg Pipkin. Yeah, Pipkin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Pipkin. He's he's uh, Barkley's Who's banker. the best at basketball, the four of you? Uh, well, I think it was clearly uh, Greg and I. We, we happened to be a little taller. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. We, we all had our roles. <laughs> Just in case they were listening. Yes. Right. Uh, and how, how important is, is it to be able to uh, come from that world? And or I, I mean, Another way to ask it is, is how much of a benefit is, is it to being able to speak this language or understand this world? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was kind of an interesting coincidence that we grew up in Texas and in, in the oil and gas industry. And 
and I was an engineer directly in the industry. I kind of like to tell people I had a real job back then because um, I was really in the field touching lots of things in the oil field. Uh, but I think it, what really is relevant, uh, Matt, is the, you know, it's the 30 plus years that I've spent doing this work and being involved with this community, very important community and very entrepreneurial community. And I think over time you build a reputation and, and you do a lot of deals that, where it's your personal reputation, the firm's reputation, and just overall transaction expertise. And I think that all adds up. And I think uh, we've had a very stable uh, senior team. And I think that's been very advantageous. And I think this, in this environment, intellectual capital really matters. All right, let's talk about uh, deals then. Uh, and let's talk about big deals. You know, uh, we, we won't talk specifically about uh, Halliburton, Baker Hughes, or uh, you know, Energy Transfer, Williams. Um, but within that context, it seems like it's a challenging time to get some of these large transactions across the finish line. And, you know, we also reported on, uh, what was it, how Anadarko approached Apache. It just seems, it, it, is it unusually hard to make big deals come together right now? Well, I think it's hard to generalize. Every deal has its own characteristics. Um, I think the part of the challenge with big deals is there just aren't that many big companies. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in certain cases, there's overlaps that require different types of approval. Uh, but I just think that uh, given the, there's only so many big companies, and most most big companies have very uh, a very high quality inventory of assets, and so for them to pursue other big deals, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of that in the history of the oil and gas business, uh, but there has to be the right value, it has to be the right fit, it has to be the right social issues that have to be resolved, and and there has to be some reason why why the deal makes sense. I, I don't think it's necessarily harder. Again, every deal is different, has its own characteristics. and um, But I think, again, just aren't that many big deals. It's also a reasonably concentrated industry in various parts of it. And so you know, I think people have to think about what makes sense. Uh, two other questions specifically about energy investment banking. Some of the news uh, of, of this week already uh, from an M&A standpoint is that Perella Weinberg is in merger discussions with Tudor Pickering to come together. And I think that speaks to the weakness of the U.S. energy industry, in part, at least for those investment bankings. I'm curious, as you look at the health of energy M&A investment banking, is now a good time to be an investment banker, or is it a dangerous time? Well, I think it depends on who you are and where you work. Um, I, I don't think we're suffering from lack of activity. I think, as I mentioned earlier, intellectual capital matters a lot. Clients really need us to think hard about coming up with good solutions for them. Uh, and also having a balance sheet, I think, is relevant, too. Companies ultimately need some help and the ability to execute deals in the capital markets. And I think for some of the boutiques, it's a, it's a bit harder because they don't have that capital position. And they're relying almost purely on, on the advisory and restructuring business. And, and so in a difficult market like this, that might be, for certain situations, might be a, a, a little more difficult. They're maybe too exposed to the oil and gas business. They, not, they might lack uh, critical mass. Uh, in today's environment, I, I I don't feel that we have that issue at all. I think we're extremely busy, as you commented about our our strong market share in equities, and also we're doing a lot of debt refinancings. Where we have a lot of M and A work going on, uh, so I think for those uh, oil and gas groups that are uh, very experienced and been together for a long time and have truly differentiated relationships and execution capabilities, I think we're going to remain quite busy. So no no complaints from my side. There are some big names in energy, the industry and M&A. I mean, the late Aubrey McClendon, I think T. Boone Pickens. Is it a different animal when you're in energy M&A than maybe some other industries that are a little bit more subdued in terms of the characters involved? Maybe, in other words, what I'm saying is 
a lot of these guys sort of have a reputation of being big risk takers. How does that affect your job as a financial advisor? Yeah, I don't think that question is limited to M&A. Um, I think it's in general, uh, all the various activities they do, including raising capital. Uh, there's no question that uh, the oil and gas business uh, has a lot of entrepreneurs. It's a business where people can, if they take calculated risk and they're prudent with the use of capital and just overall technology uh, differentiation and experience that they can be, um, that they can do well, uh, even in a, a volatile uh, market or in a downturn like we, we are facing today. There's a number of companies in the oil and gas industry that are doing actually quite well. We kind of label them as the haves. Uh, the have-nots are in deep trouble. Uh, they're over-levered. They don't have the right quality assets. They might lack a number of different things. Um, but uh, it, it certainly is a business that, that uh, has a lot of uh, entrepreneurship and a lot of personal flair to it. Uh, but again, I mentioned the uh, technology business earlier. I don't think uh, it's much different in th than that. Uh, I will also mention that the, uh, the, with the shale uh, revolution, the shale boom, was driven by a lot of these entrepreneurs. And uh, again, I don't think they took necessarily inappropriate risk, but they definitely were, were willing to, uh, to pursue very interesting opportunities and, and were able to develop an industry that did not exist in the past. In fact, this is the first downturn where the shale companies are relevant. They did not exist in prior downturns. So I think looking at histories it doesn't provide a whole lot of uh, information because it's different. Then the other thing is, as I mentioned to Matt earlier, the uh, supply-demand balance of oil globally is much tighter than other downturns, particularly the, the, the really deep one in the early 80s when I was a young engineer. And and so this one's not fun. It is, it's, it's definitely pronounced, but uh, but I think we have better fundamentals. Yeah, and how many of your clients would you say were around in the 80s, and how would they characterize this compared to what they experienced in the 80s? Well, I think the people were around. I think if you look at most senior management and board members, directors, uh, I think they're my age a little bit older, and I think they very much uh, experienced that downturn. I think it's one of the reasons you've seen a, reason, a fair amount of equity being issued is, I think, from the company or issuer side, uh, they recognize that uh, it's important to be to have a, a good balance sheet, good uh, good financial flexibility, and it's not purely defensive. It's also uh, for an offensive perspective because if the if the industry starts moving up, uh, the people that raise this capital, not just the equity issuers, but others who have that type of flexibility, I think will will have a number of very attractive investment opportunities to pursue. But uh, there's no question that the senior management and the board, uh, the board members, directors, certainly remember the that downturn from the 80s. Osmar Beeb, Global Head of Oil and Gas at Credit Suisse. Uh, years of experience on uh, multiple sides of the ener energy industry. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, that was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And Matt Monks, uh, Bloomberg M&A reporter for the energy industry, as well as others. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed that. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. Also, please take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Really interested to hear what you have to say. And follow me on Twitter, at Sherman4949. Shanali Basic is at Shanali Basic. That's at S-O-N-A-L-I-B-A-S-A-K. See you next week. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.